Hello, readers. Welcome to 20 Questions with Your Favorite Author, where we ask authors important questions like, why would you agree to be on this podcast? I'm Kelly Lynn Colby, Editorial Director at Curse Dragon Ship Publishing. Our guest this week is Steve Ruskin, writer of Supernatural Thrillers and Mountain Bike Guide. Steve's the author of the best-selling The Newton Cipher and other genre fiction novels. He is a historian of science with a PhD from the University of Notre Dame and authored America's First Great Eclipse, which became a top seller during the Great American Eclipse of 2017. Welcome, Steve. Welcome. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. It's good to see you, Kelly. Thanks for having me on today. Yes, it is wonderful to see you. We have a, a good crowd pulling up. We've got uh, Florida Kevin on and uh, John K. Patterson just logged on. Hey, John. We've got Maya and moms and all kinds of fun people. So welcome, everyone. Please, like always, um, if you want to put your questions in, we would love to have them. Steve wants to answer your questions, not mine. So put them in and I will read them as they come up. But first, we have a traditional, very important question to ask at the very beginning. You ready for it to begin Hit me. All right. Where do you get your ideas? Where do I get my ideas? I know you always ask this and I just, you know, like some people know, some people, I think I'm one of those where my eyes or my ideas just kind of filter up subconsciously. I will admit I get a lot of ideas. You know, you mentioned I'm a historian. I do. I am an academic historian and academic history can be so boring and you read these great things and you're like, what if this happened? And I've always been like that ever since I was young. Cause I love, you know, I've read like so many of us, I read science fiction and fantasy when I was a kid and went on to be, you know, to, to work on my PhD. And, and well, that was fun and I enjoyed it very much. I know that there were definitely things that came up and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, Newton was, Newton's alchemy was, you know, if he was, if, if alchemy was real and magical. So that's, you know, a bit of what, kind of inspired the Newton cipher. So things like that. But, you know, I guess I don't have a good answer. Um, they come when you're walking around. They come when I'm working out. They come when I'm running. It's I do get good ideas when I'm working out, though, I think, uh, because my brain tunes out. I mean, there are, there are, it's amazing the places your mind will go to when your body's in pain just to escape. And I get a lot of good ideas doing that, too, you know, kind of free your conscious mind, let your subconscious filter, you know, just kind of wander around and, and pick things up. So... See, I when know. I go exercise, my mind is obsessed with, you need to breathe now. Breathe, breathe, breathe. That's about as far as I get. Yeah. So, but of course I get ideas from all the other great writers and, and, and readers that I hang out with too, like you guys and all of our friends who we, you know, our network of writers that we have. So, uh, yeah. That's awesome. And that was a great answer, by the way. Thanks. So with your PhD in science history, how much does that area of expertise influence your work? My fiction, you're thinking? Mm-hmm. Well, either. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. I, I suppose quite a bit. You know, I've written a lot of my, some of my very first short stories when I started writing fiction were sort of based on history of science. In particular, some of my first characters were naturalists, right? So my my field was 19th century science. I did a lot of work on the history of astronomy, which actually included ideas of extraterrestrial life, because that was one of the specialties of my advisor. Um, and he's actually on on Ancient Aliens. Is that it? That show? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and not that he's a believer, but they got him on as an expert. And one of my buddies from Notre Dame is on there, too. Um, so we did a lot of history of astronomy. And that included, you know, because everyone was speculating about, you know, the 19th century and, and then before, really for centuries, mm-hmm. um, astronomers specu- speculated on, on life uh, on other planets. So there was kind Still of that do. piece. Yeah, still do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also did a lot of work with naturalists, right? Explorers, um, people who who were you know botanists, zoologists, as we would call them now. Um, and so some of my very first stories were actually about naturalists. I did one uh, one character that I've reused a few times, most recently in an anthology called Superstitions that Jace Killen put together. Um, of, of a naturalist who explored kind of a weird West, right? He kept encountering, you know, spirits and things like that. Um, I also would write about, um, um, uh, I wrote a great short story. Well, I liked it when I was younger about, um, about um, you know, the canals of Mars, right? Which we know were, yes. were didn't exist, but um, in this story, they were real and the Martians came to Earth and 
and uh, had a few choice words for some of the astronomers who were spying on them, they thought. So so things like that. So basically, in my early career, when I first started writing short stories, and maybe that goes back to your first question, I did actually um, kind of draw on the sorts of things that I was working on to come up with some of my fiction ideas. And I think they just sort of came up naturally, you know. So, uh, but lately more of my, you know, I've been writing science fiction and then the book, the Newton cipher, I drew on the history of science that I knew for the Newton cipher, but I didn't really, that didn't really come from my historical work. Um, it just, it, my knowledge of Newton kind of helped inform the plot. Um, but it, that didn't necessarily come out of any, any work that I had done as a historian. And then I write a science fiction series and other stuff that, um, is strictly future sci-fi space opera. So I, I don't really draw too much on, on my history has to be for fun. Um, Maya wants assurances that your advisor isn't the hair guy on Ancient Aliens. He's not the hair guy, no. <laughs> no, my advisor wrote this massive book called Ideas of Extraterrestrial Life, and it covers almost a, a millennium. It's, it's a classic work, actually, in the history of science. Um, he's a great, very intelligent guy. Um, but it's, it, he, you know, he would, he told me once that he even got, we get calls from like the National Enquirer, right? Saying, you know, we know you're kind of an expert on, on extraterrestrials and he'd be like, not extraterrestrials, but what people thought extraterrestrials might be in the past. And then like, please just tell us you've seen them. And he'd be like, no, I, I can't tell you I've seen them. You know, he'd get these crazy calls from all kinds of places or requests to like weigh in on actual extraterrestrials and he's like we, I, we don't know all i'm telling you is what people in the past thought of what they might be like if they existed at all that kind of thing. you're like it's i'm doing science here people yeah, the stories <laughs> were hilarious so uh it was great but that wasn't his only focus that was just one of his many projects over his long career so anyway that is his name is mike crow by the way so if you do watch ancient aliens he pops up a bit in some of the later seasons i think so that's pretty cool well, that's why I enjoy that show because the history they do teach in that show. Because they talk about history and then they go with their crazy theories. But then you still get that history part. And I like right. that. Right. Let's see. It's obvious you used what you were talking about in the Newton cipher. So exploring the actions of Isaac Newton embroiled with magic, which was so fascinating. Um, I have to say at the very beginning when you feature Newton, because he's not in it, right? It takes place in modern times. Um, but yes. he's in the beginning. And so he talks like in the language of alchemy. Mm -hmm. And he says like in autumn bathe the doves of Diana in Aquafortis, let the white swan swallow the black crow. The mm -hmm. emperor shall burn with the eagles of Hermes. Is this like real? Like did they actually use this in alchemy or did you make that up? No, it's absolutely true. I mean, I, I made no. up some of it just, but the alchemists, um, so for, so yeah, I did the, the beginning, you know, Al Newton, Newton was isolated in Cambridge. So this takes place in 1666, 67. Um, you know, it's, so let me start. There's a few pieces here. So that okay. first bit, yeah, Newton, uh, it does the Newton cipher and the subsequent book, which I'm kind of in the middle of editing right now. Um, and it's kind of continues that Newton's not in it so much, but it continues the alchemical magic piece. Um, it's a supernatural thriller, right? So I kind of, I always loved Clive Cussler, right? And, you know, he always would start with some history bit and and how that affected the modern world and that's a pretty standard structure that's how now. i found out about library of alexandria that was clive kessler taught me exactly right <laughs> that was um and that was the one there where they went ended up going to texas right because they yes, hit it, it off is. but yeah kessler. so so it's basically that's when i start with newton some things that happened back then affect the present but i do kind of dip back as the story goes along i like to kind of drop back just to kind of give little clues to the the plot that's going on in you know present day Right. So that stuff I tried to make as accurate as possible. Newton was isolated in Cambridge um, during the plague. And um, so and I, I used made sure he, that the dates in my book lined up as nearly as possible. You know, I think it needed to tweak a few things for my own plot, but I really try to make the history pretty accurate. Uh, and Newton's such a great character. I mean, he was crazy smart. We know that he was pretty odd in a lot of ways. Um, he had, I think he had a lot of um, self-confidence issues early on. Um, you know, there just were a lot of things about him, but but he was totally living in his head um, and no one could really keep up with him. Uh, so he was a, he's a fun character to write and his insecurities I kind of use as a key plot element in, in my book, kind of, especially once you get to the end, but I won't, you know, reveal too much of that because it's giving away part. my own plot. <laughs> so. But 
so the alchemy stuff. So that was real. But, they actually so, yeah, used sorry, that kind that of language. Was, yeah. So so alchemists were very very secretive um, of their processes because what they were really talking about it wasn't just turning lead into gold. It was the whole idea that in God's creation, because alchemists I think were very spiritual people and, and specifically Christian, you know, type of uh, for the most part. Um, and they saw alchemy as a way of understanding God's creation by, by seeing, you know, God created this whole world and there's this great chain of being from the angels on down to the snails, right? With us kind of closer to the snails. Um, but the idea was that, um, you know, matter could could be transformed if you knew God's secrets. But it was because these were secrets and and required lots of work uh, and pot were potentially dangerous. They coded it in this sort of language. So things like the rooster crowing at dawn or, um, you know, the, the lion devouring the sun could could mean something like melting um, mercury or, um, you know, burning um um, antimony or something to to get a, a new product, which wouldn't be a antimony ash. It would be you know the scales of the snake or something like that. Um, so yeah, so so you would know if you were an alchemist what these other alchemists were talking about in the recipes. But if you were just us, right, you'd be like, what? This is cuckoo, it's crazy yeah. talk. So. It so yes, like magic to me, right? So I can see where that all came from. That's it's so fun. fascinating. It's fun. Because it, it's it's just it's a quick step, you know, just to the side to to turn it into sort of magical spells and potions and stuff. That's so cool. I need a book of those. That sounds fascinating to me. There are books out there. I have them on my desk. Where <laughs> I don't have them nearby, but they're out there. Yes. That is so cool. Um, yeah, Florida Kevin says isolated during the plague. We can relate. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, I wrote the Newton cipher. It came out. Well, it came out last summer, but I finished writing it just before, you know, and turned it into Ring of Fire Press, Eric Flint, um, two months before we went on lockdown. Mm. So it was, and it's a, basically about a big plague. So anyway. It's incredible. Sometimes fiction. Let's see. The um, Let's see. So we talked about that the bulk of this novel takes place in modern times, but draws heavily from historical events. Um, with, you know, let's say embellished elements, which we talked about with the magic. Did you get to travel to London to research the locales featured? Yeah, actually, I, you know, I love to travel. That's one of the things that that's killing me most about kind of this current situation. My mom is German. I love Europe. Let's, yes. I've traveled all over the world, mm -hmm. Austria, uh, a little bit in Asia. My wife's been to Japan. I'm jealous of that. Um, Australia, I said, but, um, but mostly my time's been here. My mom's German. Right after high school, I went and backpacked around Europe, stayed with some of my family, uh, and then I, be I loved it. I was just growing up in Colorado where, you know, it's, it's obviously beautiful, but everything's new. I mean, the oldest structures, you know, Colorado Springs itself has just turned 150 years old. And so um, going to a place, especially that I knew my mom was from, where there's you're walking on streets and walking through buildings that are millennia old or more, um, I was just blown away. And that's kind of what inspired me to become a historian. Cause then I went back to college and I was like engineering, political science. I just, I was 18 too. I mean, I admit I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I said, I'm going to be an historian. My parents are like, you're going to do what now? <laughs> but then I got into Notre Dame and you know, that was kind of a PhD for, fortune. I didn't, they didn't have to pay. And then they were like, that's great. You know, you're going to a great school. And I was really happy. So, um, so yeah, so I always, you know, most summers I was spending some time in Europe. I even became an exchange student for a little bit. That family um, that I was with in Germany, I'm still very close to. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I went to Cambridge. It's I was during my PhD or for for my PhD, I lived in Cambridge for a while. Um, I had a grant to go. That was great. So, yeah, I was, you know, walking the same streets. Newton was walking. I, you could see his rooms at Trinity College every where you walk by. So that features prominently in the book. I went down to London all the time. Uh, and then that picture I even have, you know, that we used for the advertising for this, that was me in Greece just um, November of 19, you know, just again, a couple months before um, things locked down. So yeah, I love to travel and it absolutely informs my, my writing. Um, even my sci-fi, I sort of mentioned parts of Europe and stuff. And um, the next book for the Newton Cipher, the follow-on, will take place in Paris. So, Ooh, fun. That sounds like a good excuse. I mean, you have to go visit again. Yeah, I haven't been to Paris in ages, but I still remember it pretty well. So, And Google, right? Google Maps, Google Earth. You just you log in, you're, you're walking the streets. It's, it's mm -hmm. cheating. It's not as fun because you don't get coffee and the smell of fresh baking bread and croissants and stuff. But for research purposes, it'll do. Well, I think if you've already been there, 
right? Then you have kind of a, an idea. So just using Google to fill in the details, I, I don't think that's cheating. I think that's smart writing. It's cheaper. It is cheaper also. Not as much fun. It's not as much fun. Mm -hmm. Um. Let's see, if you, since we've been talking about scientists a lot, and my, my degree's in biology. I have a BS in biology, and I adore scientists. I find them just as fascinating as the science sometimes. So if you could go back in time and meet a scientist, who would you pick? It'd probably be a guy named John Herschel, right? He's the guy I did my PhD on. He was the most, um, well, his father, William Herschel, right, mm -hmm. uh, was the discoverer of the planet Uranus, right, um, from Bath, England in 1781. Uh, he had one son, this guy, John Herschel. Um, everyone looked up to John. John turned out to not just be the son of a great astronomer. He turned out to be sort of a genius in his own right. Um, they kind of saw him as, as sort of the the um, the next great British scientist kind of in, in Newton's line. Right. So if you go to Westminster Abbey in London, you see the great. Have you been there? Um, I have not. London's on my well, list. I okay. have been to Germany, well, but I've not Abbey. been to London. Cool. And that's fine, you know, but there's this great tomb of Isaac Newton's right there. It's it's an elaborate altar piece. It's just beautiful. Well, right down below Newton, there's two people buried at his feet uh, or at his grave, whatever. One is Darwin and the other one is this guy, John Herschel. Right. And everyone knows Darwin. No one knows who this Herschel guy is. And it's his name's written in Latin anyway. So that makes it even weirder kind of for, for us. And, you know, no one really you know reads Latin anymore anyway. Right. Um, but Herschel, you know, Darwin looked up to Herschel in his own day. Herschel was the original crazy white haired guy. You think of Einstein, but Herschel had crazy hair long before then. Um, and he did work in astronomy, botany, photography. I mean, he he really was. He was at the center of science. Darwin, when he was on the Beagle, John Herschel was at the Cape in the 1830s. That's what I did my dissertation on, John Herschel down at the Cape. And Darwin, the Beagle stopped. And the first thing Darwin did was go to visit John Herschel because he looked up to him. Um, so this guy was was really no one knows him now, like I said, but he was he was kind of the he was the he was it. He was it in the 19th century. Um, and so that's who I would go back and visit. I don't know what I would say. He was apparently very socially awkward. Like Darwin has this great quote when he went to meet John Herschel. He said it's a great quote. He said, John Herschel walks into the room as if he knows his hands are dirty and he knows that his wife knows that his hands are dirty. In other words, he's this really kind of, he was always very quiet and stuff and shy and awkward. So he was, you know, he was kind of a, a funky guy in, in that regard. But um, that's probably who I'd go back and meet. Mostly because yeah. I've read all his letters and he'd be like, what's up with that, you weirdo stalker? <laughs> yeah, maybe don't tell him that when you first meet him. <laughs> well, you don't only write alternative history thrillers. Um, we talked a little bit already about your space opera that you do, the Exo Rock. Is that how you say it? Yes, that's, that's what it is. And that's the name of a company. Um, yeah, and it's it's great. Um, I mean, that was one of the first. So the novella, which I give away free on my website, is called Deal with the Devil's Broke. I'm pointing over to my other monitor here where I'm kind of watching the 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 feed on Twitch. But um, I know it's cycling through. So the Deal with the Devil's Broker, um, I'll, I'll give you my website at the end. Well, it's steveruskin.com, but we'll talk about it at the end again. But um, uh, you can download that for free. And it was a novella I wrote years ago, actually, when I was first learning to write, you know, with Dean Wesley Smith. It came out of one of his writing prompts. And um, wrote it, and then I liked the characters, and so I wrote the next one, which is called Prometheus Outbound, um, and then I wrote the one after that, which came out last year, Asgard Reborn, and I have the third one. I'm just waiting um, to do it because I've kind of got another project that I'm working on, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but so, but I really like space opera, and, and this character is just sort of a, a, a she was a low-level mech driver, right? Think of a, mechs like think of Ripley and Aliens. Um, um, the mechs are somewhere between that like yellow thing she was driving around to fight off the queen and maybe a little bit more on the spectrum tour, you know, somewhere between those and like the cool kind of mechs they use in, um, in Avatar, right? When they're those, the, the kind of the, the mean military bad guys, um, the mechs that I'm picturing are, so they're cargo mechs basically. And anyway, things go South. The, the world I create has these sort of council princes which are basically ruling families in this empire they're all on this my scene or my books take place in this periphery of the empire which becomes very important there's a bigger empire which doesn't really feature they're just kind of in a backwater um and there's these little squabbling princes that own kind of all the resources and and anyway she's got to become a rebel and she has this team of mech pilots and they don't really get weapons because the princes don't let them have them so they start using their mechs to fight back and and uh, it's been fun to write. Um, so I'm looking forward to the, the third book, which I, I have plotted out. I just need to 
to get it get it written. But I really enjoy I've always enjoyed space opera. I mean, who among us hasn't right from from, you know, Asimov and, and Clark on to the more recent stuff. I mean, I'm in love with the expanse and stuff. So. Um, so, yeah, so it's just kind of my little contribution to the genre. So that's awesome. Well, Dave says he loved Devil's Broker. So obviously you're rocking it. Thank you, Dave. Let's see. So you talked about the mechs. I think I love because at the beginning of this in um, Prometheus Outbound, you have um, it's the, a mech salesman putting it on thick for your protagonist. Right. It's Noemi, right? Noemi? Yes. As he shows her around his newest line of mechs, right? So he's really laying it on thick. Yeah. And th this scene felt so real to me. So I was wondering if you'd had personal experience with this kind of trade show. It's funny you should ask. Actually, I haven't. You're the. I mean, granted, I don't talk to a lot of people about this, but you, you, uh -huh. you're exactly right. I, so I worked, you know, after grad school, after my PhD, there just weren't a lot of jobs in academia. And those jobs that are do exist, there's 200 people fighting for them. And then you get $30,000 a year plus, mm -hmm. you know, your your department responsibility. I mean, it, my wife as a teacher was making more mm -hmm. back then. So I went into the corporate world and um, I worked in marketing and sort of some support side, but I worked closely with a salesman because I knew the the product. Um, and yeah, so all this comes from all the salesmen I watched, you know, and, and they were great. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously stereotyping, you know, caricaturing them. Um, it felt real. <laughs> sales, yeah, salesmen can be real weasels i was actually thinking of our competition not the salesman i worked with they were pretty cool guys and girls so but yeah 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 okay i was wondering because it, it felt like personal experience so it was yeah. i get it now mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i wanted to work in that cringe factor but you know we get that every day i mean how many sales calls or like phone calls do we get you know it's just yeah or you go to even when you buy a car or something my wife just had to buy a new a new used car but and it was fine it was at carmax they're not quite as pushy but you just you you come in prepared like to you're all ready to fight you know or to just to resist you're ready to say no and that's that's kind of what i wanted to convey um even though naomi really or no noemi sorry see now I'm, i've got a, my daughter's friend's name naomi but noemi does you know she needs these mechs she needs uh -huh. them bad but she doesn't want to let on that she needs them bad um but she knows she needs so she's she's there to negotiate yeah she can't be an easy mark come on now so so we talked a little bit about the history and we talked a little bit uh so with the thriller and then we have the space opera and they're so different what mm -hmm. can you tell us about the difference in the world building between the two styles mm, that's a good question um i mean space opera for me is a little bit more I find it a little bit easier to write probably because I'm making it up. I'm really making it up. Um, there's no, I have no constraints. I've never been to space. I've just seen lots of space movies like all of us, right? Mm -hmm. But we've never been to space. I've never fought, you know, in the middle of a cargo bay on a space freighter, you know, in, the, in an asteroid belt or something. Um, but I've seen enough movies and can wing it enough to, to sort of make it kind of whatever I want. So this is for me, of course. For the, the history, for the supernatural thriller with the history piece, um, that really slows me down because I am an academic historian. I have this, I'm not proud of it, but it, I have a, a real block when it comes to writing history because I'm worried that I won't get things right. Now in fiction, you, sh you shouldn't, I mean, you should get enough right, I think. I, th I think too much, too many facts can bog you down. The problem is I spent so long training as an academic historian where you're every sentence has a reference and or a citation, you know, and you're worried about the other three people in your field that are going to read this and might criticize it because tenure's on the line or something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that it sort of instills an unconscious fear in you. And that's something that I've always struggled with uh, to sort of wean my wean off of because yeah, I, most of my, I'm a good, I mean, I, I wrote a lot, you know, they say you need to write a million words of, you know, of whatever. So you're good. And I'm, you know, give or take whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, it's rule of thumb and it may not even be valid, but it, it's probably a, a good mark. The more you write, the better you get. The more you do anything, the better you get. Right. Uh, so I wrote tons. It's a skill, and, not a talent. Yep. Right. Mo I wrote tons for for a good 20 years. I was writing nonfiction and I, I'm a good writer, meaning I can write serviceable prose with no problem. I also wrote for newspapers and things. I did some stringing and, and different things like that. Um, so I'm a good writer, but switching to fiction was a little harder for me because it was just, you know, I was too worried about perfection, I guess. It's a sort of a perfectionist type disease. And that's something that I've always struggled with. And so 
space opera kind of lets me um, get away from that. Whereas with with the Newton stuff, I was very concerned to get the details right. Uh, and then and that kind of carried over into the present day stuff because she's traveling around London and Cambridge. So I know all the details, but I always look things up, make sure I got something right. Like I got something really wrong in the beginning of the Newton cipher. OK, in this in that first chapter, Newton or the, the bat, these sort of bad guys sail away along the River Cam, you know, on a punt. Right. Those boats that you push along with a pole because the River Cam is very shallow and you see people punting. Maybe you've seen pictures Oxford and Cambridge. It's punting. Right. If you're not careful, you'll wobble and fall in. So I say they go under this bridge of size, which is at next door St. John's College. Right. It's this really cool bridge that you can see pictures of. Um, and they sail kind of away into the night, leaving Newton kind of angry and scratching his head. Well, the Bridge of Sighs wasn't built till the 19th century. And I knew oh, this. No. <laughs> I knew this, but it was still in the 17th century in my book. And it was well after publication. I was reading it again. I opened it up for some reason. I read uh, that and I'm like, oh, crap. And I looked it up real quick because I was sure. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that bridge didn't even exist. What do you do? You're like, right? dang it. <laughs> so that, and that killed me for like five minutes. I was just like, oh, man. That's because you're thinking of those three people who are going to notice. Right. And then I'm like, no one's ever said anything. It's fiction. Maybe in this world, the Bridge of Sighs was built 150 years early. You know, St. John's (laughs) College, by the way, where the Bridge of Sighs is, St. John's, which is next to Trinity, where Newton was. St. John's, well, has many famous people, but that's where um, Douglas Adams was. It's really. And another since we're on since we're all science fiction geeks, I was in Cambridge in 2001. And I was walking by St. John's College the morning when I saw the newspaper that said Douglas Adams had just passed away in California. And I was like, I mean, it was kind of, it was fitting, it was sad, but I was like right there standing outside of St. John's where he was. And that's, and there was like a little newspaper because I, back then the internet, you know, we didn't have phones and stuff, 2001. Um, so I get newspapers sometimes just because that's what you did. It was very British, you know? Oh yeah. So, um. Yeah, just a small anecdote. Interesting. The lives we've led. Let's see. We have a question from John Patterson. He wants to know, he's curious, what is your favorite scientific controversy in history? Hmm. My gosh, there's so many. There are. I think John would probably say something about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, yes. (laughs) Um, But for me... I don't know. Isaac Newton was great with controversy. He and and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz sort of invented calculus at the same time. Um, and Leibniz in Germany, they had a you know they had sort of a different take up, but they basically came up with calculus at the same time. Uh, and Leibniz was a little more calm about it. I think he was a little more willing to share, you know, to sort of share the 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 credit in a way. Newton just wasn't having any of it. So I guess controversies are always fun when when one or both sides are going at it, you know, with tooth and nail, and and Newton just couldn't handle. I, I'm I'm I mean I'm I'm oversimplifying a lot of things, but Newton didn't take things like that well. So those are fun just because you see how scientists are very human too, and can even be quite petty. Um, so that Especially controversy. Newton. Especially Newton, yeah, and that wasn't the only time he, you know, he went at it with with folks. So, um, so that's always a good one. The 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 sort of debate over the the prior, you know, the priority of who discovered calculus. Newton just did not give ground at all. So, yeah, see, that's one of the things that throws me off when someone writes Isaac Newton as a good guy, right? I'm like, no, like it, I I get lost right away. I'm like, no. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't a bad guy. He was, I, I think he was just very insecure, especially. Yeah, but he wasn't on. nice. <laughs> he wasn't nice. No, he could be really, really nasty. Um, and very intolerable. So, yeah, no way. I mean, the, no the story, you know, we, there's this great quote, which sounds so noble, where he says, if I've seen farther than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Well, one of the interpretations of that, he was writing that to kind of people at the Royal Society, and in particular talking about, you know, Robert Hooke, because there was a controversy. Now, Robert Hooke, um, great micros- microscopist, right? He he did work with micro um, with microscopes. Um, had this book called Micrographia. So, but he Robert Hooke was a poor guy, meaning he he didn't come from from he didn't have a lot of money. He wasn't a a well-to-do family like many of the Royal Society members. So Robert Hooke, uh, well, he was a genius in his own right. Um, as you know, this is this is the era of Newton, but also Edmund Halley. Robert Hooke, Christopher Wren, who designed, you know, the the St. Paul's Cathedral and rebuilt much of London after the fire. So these were all contemporaries. Well, Robert Hooke, 
smart as he was, um, didn't have a lot of money. So he worked as kind of a, an employee at the Royal Society, helping to run experiments and doing other things. Uh, but he was a runt. He was a hunchback. He was very small, pretty weaselly looking. Well, that sounds bad, but I mean, he, he just, he was not an attractive man. He was pretty small, right? So when Newton, and so there was a controversy about some discoveries, which we don't need to go into, but it was between Isaac Newton and Robert Hooke. And so when Robert, when Hooke, I mean, when Newton says, if I've seen farther than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. He was, his subtext was, and it wasn't you, you little runt, you little puny little Robert Hooke. That's basically how some people interpret what he was saying, because it was, it was kind of a backhanded, you know, it was, I mean, it wasn't front hand. He was basically saying, it wasn't you. I didn't learn this from you. I did it on my own, you know? So giants and you're not a giant. So yeah, he could be, he could be nasty. Oh, he was pretty nasty. I always think of, for me, it's always that Malcolm Reynolds quote where he's like, you know, the way he figured every statue, every every man who had a statue made out of him was some kind of son of a bitch or another. I'm yeah. like, that is the most accurate quote I've ever heard because that's definitely yeah. true. And yeah. Isaac Newton qualifies there. He's not my favorite. Let's see. Um, wait, we had another question from the audience. We have a question from Dave. Dave wants to know, did you draw the mechs out or design them visually before writing about them? Um, a little bit. I mean, I had some rough sketches. I can't draw very well at all. So I had an idea, but really in my mind, I kind of was using what, what I just described to you earlier. I kind of was picturing something between what Ripley used in Aliens uh, and um, what you know the the guys used uh, in the battle. Well, and you know their cargo lifting in in Avatar when they were those military guys using those mechs to kind of shunk cargo around. It was kind of somewhere in between there. But in in my story, there's different classes of cargo of of, of mechs, right? But they're all based on how on their tonnage, what they can move around, because they're these are just workers, right? These are blue collar workers. Um, so yeah, but I had an idea for like a, I have light, medium, and heavy mechs. Uh, and and when they realize they need to use them to defend themselves and to 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 go on the offensive at at certain points, they start wielding armor on them or, or welding, sorry, welding armor plating on them and attaching you know rifles and stuff. So they're kind of, you know, they look more Frankenstein-y than anything smooth and cool like you might see in like BattleTech, for example. You know where those are clearly military mechs from design, from design to build. So that's kind, but that's kind of the fun because they're always you know like, ah, damn, my arm just blew off, you know, and, and, and they're, you know, kind of winging it as they go. And and through the book, they progress to more and more powerful equipment based on some of the encounters they have. But um, so, so yeah, I mean, I had an idea in my mind, but I didn't actually sketch them out, but I kind of knew what they were like. And I would describe, they're described in the books and that's kind of how I, I visualize them. So. Very cool. Um, do you like, do a lot of podcasts or anything? You know, I mean, I, I do my share, but they are, I don't, not of my own. I don't do, but I, I, I go to a lot and I, I tend to do a lot of, um, history based podcasts. Uh, I did a couple the past few, um, years where I was supposed to do live presentations about Colorado or naturalists, right. Cause I'm kind of, I've, I've written on history of science in Colorado, uh, in the 19th century. So I get request now and then to do that but you know the eclipse book that you mentioned which is cycling through my america's first great eclipse when that came out in the beginning of 2017 you know in those months building up to the the great eclipse of you know in august okay. i did i did radio shows i did tv shows i did podcasts i did all kinds of stuff um and so that was actually pretty exhausting i was doing some that were like I was up till one in the morning. Yeah, you know, maybe we would start at one in the morning. They were these late night ones, but they were some pretty fun big markets like New York and Chicago and stuff. But you know, but at those late ones, I got crazy, crazy questions sometimes of guys who were clearly people. It was always guys, males who needed sleep, but they would ask like if the eclipse was hiding um, the the government um, tracking device or something like this, and I'd be like. You know, the host would, would save me, but I, we, you know, oh, got a caller. Yeah. So do you think when the eclipse happens, it'll reveal the, you know, the, the, will we get glimpses of the government, whatever satellites that are like radiating our brains? Or I'd be like, ah, and the coach would be like, all right, next caller. So, so anyway, that's, that's the best ever. Oh yeah. It was fun. It was fun. I usually had a beer with me for those calls or two. My wife 
who couldn't sleep because I'd be doing it in our room because our daughters were smaller then. She'd bring me <laughs> beer and stuff and just kind of laugh. So, but for the most part, that was really fun. So answering your question, I mean, I, I do do, I'm not sure where you, if you were going somewhere with that, but yeah, I, no, I no, no. do my It share. was very simple. I was actually going to ask because Steve H&H &H, um, says you have a really nice camera. He likes your camera. So I was wondering if you got specifically that camera for these kind no, of engagements. The camera is just my iMac. I do use a, a Yeti mic, a blue, um, blue Yeti or Yeti blue mic, but um, no, it's just my iMac camera. So it just works well, I guess. Yeah. yeah, we have some podcaster friends. They're always looking at equipment. Yeah. Well, let's see. Since we started talking about America's first great eclipse, um, mm -hmm. and that is your nonfiction novel. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm figuring that you must have done a ton of research for that. I was wondering, what was the coolest thing you learned? Besides, you know, the radiating satellites. Well, that was, so I did, it's funny because that came out of a, an article I wrote um, in 2010, right? I was just doing some other research on Colorado and, and came across some articles about this eclipse that occurred in 1878, right? Which was a really big deal. So I wrote a short article um, and thought, you know what? Because I knew we had this big total eclipse coming in 2017. You can predict those things, obviously, centuries, thousands of years in advance, really. Yep. Um, so I knew it was coming. And I planned on writing it, uh, expanding that article because I got a lot of interest. Um, and another guy um, wrote a book. He read my article, apparently, and some other stuff, but he read my article and wrote a book, too. So we there were actually two books about the 1878 eclipse okay. out at the same time. Um, I never actually read his. I just thought it'd be easier not to kind of have his stuff in mind while I was doing all my talks and stuff. Um, oh, but yeah. it, people were very interested in it, right? Because mm -hmm. the 1878 eclipse, there were a lot of parallels to the 2017 one and then the next one coming up in, in 2014, although that one's not going to go across the country like the 17 one did, you know, from from west to east coast. I mean, that was really cool. Wait, you said 2014. So what, what year? 2024, 2024. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, and it's going to go over, come over Mexico, Texas, kind of across the Midwest and up into Canada. Yeah, it's going to be sweet. So you guys are, I'm actually, I'm going to come hang out with you. Come to we have a big old house. You're more than yeah. welcome. So, but anyway, um, we have beer I, too. So I did, I did do a lot of research and I had kind of the, so my article that I wrote in 2010 was just an outline for this, this book that I wrote, um, a few years later, or well, I was more than, you know, I wrote it kind of the year before the, the eclipse in 2017. Uh, and it's a short book. I mean, it's, it's not more than 30,000 words. I wanted to write one of those airplane books, right? Where you pick it up, you read it over two hours and then you're, you know, you're done. So the chapters are short, but it's really fun. It's a nice zippy, speedy read. Um, the most interesting thing, I mean, Thomas Edison makes an appearance and he's a character too. talk about Isaac Newton. I mean, yes. Edison, you know, he had his own, own issues, but he was a lot of fun. But um, I think the neatest thing that I came across in that book, and it's, it's a chapter where people were up on top of Pike's Peak. And I just found this, this report that's contemporary from 1878. It came out a few days after, um, after the, the eclipse, uh, when someone, you know, they hiked back down from the Pikes Peak and, and one guy who was up there very well educated, cause you can tell the way he writes this and it's anonymous. So I don't know who did it, but so I quoted at length, but it's basically this description of standing on top of Pikes Peak. Now you've been to Colorado Springs. You can see Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak's a 14,000 foot peak. Um, Colorado has 54, 55, depending on who you ask, 56, 14,000 foot peaks, but it doesn't get any higher. So when you're up on one, you see all the other peaks in the distance and you see nothing else except what's below you. I mean, it's pretty magical. That's so kind of cool. This guy on Pikes Peak describes how the eclipse is just coming from the West and you see these distant peaks and, and it's like this wall of darkness and you're up so high. There's nothing to impede this view for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And he talks about how like the peaks just get sort of blink they blink out one by one as the as the wall of darkness comes towards him and then uh and then it just you're engulfed and then he was engulfed and then it moves on again out across the plains because pike's peak of course that's the end of the, the eastern edge of the rockies right so you know because you've been there and i think many people who are watching who live there or have seen it you know then you're on the plane so then you turn east and the eclipse keeps going and it just you know and then of course off in the distance the peaks reappear and then the wall of blackness moves out uh, at a, and we're talking thousand you know thousand plus miles an hour too out over the plain so the way he describes it is just fantastic and it was so good that instead of quoting like a couple sentences or even a paragraph i think i quoted like two or three pages worth because it's just one of the coolest descriptions of a total solar eclipse i've ever seen and so that's in the book and i, I like i think that's the thing that i that's the one like historical discovery that i think was the neatest part of that so but there's a lot there was a lot of neat stuff from 1878 so
Well, I like that. 30,000 words. I like my nonfiction short for some reason. Maybe yeah. it was like you said, so many years in college with these big old books, you lose interest before you actually get to the good parts. I kind of like it when you just take one thing and talk about it in the nonfiction. So that's that's really good length. Yeah. yeah I, like that. I think so, too. That's pretty cool. You just convinced me to read it. Um, let's see. I want to see that. No, I can't. I I, I keep wanting to do the 14 cares. I figure if we're going to, I'll just take KJA's number. How's that? I think that's yeah. legit. Kevin, Kevin leads, uh, leads hikes. So yeah. Yeah. No, he would kill me. I can't even walk with him when we go to the lunch. It's he's too fast. Um, let's see it. Part of the problem is Colorado. You don't have any oxygen there. That's true. I mean, it really does help to kind of come and hang out even in Colorado Springs, because my house is at 7,000 feet. I mean, that's oh. higher than most of the nation, right? But that's kind of the standard, you know, even where we stay for superstars at the Antlers Hotel, that's, I mean, Colorado Springs, I think its official elevation at City Hall is like 6,038 feet. So we're even, you know, I mean, Denver's the mile high city, but we're like a thousand feet higher or more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you got to acclimate. I mean, before you even want to go up the mountains. Yeah, there was no time for that. And I was like, I can't breathe. I cannot breathe right now. And you don't want to do it in February anyway. I mean, you could, but you run the risk of being freezing and you know, cold and running into a snowstorm. And that wouldn't be fun. And considering this is Houston and I put on a jacket and closed-toed shoes when it gets to 72 degrees, yeah, I would die. <laughs> and we don't want, I am we don't not want, acclimated to Colorado. We don't want to send you back to Kevin, you know, all, you know, all frozen. So I don't know. I might talk less. He might like that. He might pay you. Ah. Mm -hmm. It could happen. This is, uh, you said this is recorded and it's on YouTube forever, right? <laughs> We've been married a long time. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> so if you were forced to live in one of your worlds by a particularly tricky genie, which one would you choose? I like my sci-fi world. Um, so there's the, 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 one of the things, you know, in this little backwater solar system where, where most of the events take place, uh, so far anyway, there's only one planet that's that's habitable and it's actually very nice. And that's, of course, where the, all the wealthy little princelings live, you know, from their because they've got the money from their imperial families off in the, in the far part of the empire uh, and all the all the workers. It's very expanse like, you know, they're living in asteroids and and um, moon bases and stuff where they are stations where they have recycled air and you know, basically eating, you know, the food that's processed from algae and things like that. I mean, I don't go into that, but that's the idea, you know. And so only the very wealthy um, and the rulers, the political rulers, are living on this island called Aquitania, which is, you know, it's because it's a very water-based planet, but it's got some nice, um, nice islands where they live. And so in the end, of course, they're going to be able to sort of take it back or at least, take, you know, the, the, the normal, the blue collar, the spacers will be able to go and, and be planet side. Um, but I, I don't know. I like that planet that I described. It's, I was like, this sounds kind of fun, you know, and I mean, it's got some danger to it. I've got these gigantic, nasty whale type creatures with with fangs and and, and sort of claws that they encounter a little bit. But um, um, but you just don't go swimming there. Right. You know, don't go don't take your yachts out there like the wealthy princes did and had them destroyed. So but I like that island. So I would probably, you know, I haven't created a lot of worlds, but I think that one sounds fun. That so. sounds cool. Yeah. So have you watched any TV lately that you've really gotten into? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of The Expanse. I think I've said that already. We were kind of some other, you know, folks that you know, and we were chatting about it because one of them just finished season five. And we were like, oh, yeah, Amos is the best, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but big fan of Umbrella Academy. Uh, I've watched I've watched those both both seasons a couple times. Um, not as big of a fan as some of the more recent Marvel stuff, although Winter Soldier is my man. So I did like Falcon and Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. We haven't finished Loki yet. I understand it ends well, but there was a lot of head scratching for the, the early parts. So I'll probably finish that. We did like WandaVision. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I've really been I just go back to the expanse a lot. Even when I'm editing my work, I'll just let it run because I, I love, you know, I just love that show. Uh, and I think Umbrella Academy was just especially. Oh, I loved Umbrella Academy. I hated it at first. Right. I was like, these are appalling people. Well, Who yeah, they watched them. And so I didn't I, the first episode. I was like, eh. But then they got to it and then they did the Tiffany song. And I was like, all right. They like totally struck something primal in my 80s, <laughs> you know, reptilian brain. And I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. I have to watch it now. Bit. So then I rewatched it. And then I was and then, you know, it was kind of like The Expanse. The first few seasons of the or the first few episodes of season one, they're pretty hard to follow. And it's more detective. Right. Then it's right. more noir than 
than space opera. And I was like, yeah. And, and it's hard to follow because there's all these pieces that don't come together till the end, right? But when you, if you go through, you realize, holy cow, this is genius. And you go back and rewatch it just to get all the bits that you missed and you see how they're weaving it together. Yep. So maybe that's what I like about Expanse and Umbrella Academy is, you know, the, the way that it's, it's chaotic and even kind of off-putting at first. And then it totally draws you in and makes just a heck of a lot of great sense. You know, for, for those of us who write stories, you're thinking, wow, I could learn something here. So Right. You're like, clever, clever. When I watch a show and I'm like, oh, that was clever. <laughs> I like that. Let's see. Um, my, Maya is commenting on your whales with big, sharp, nasty teeth. I think we have a little Monty Python here. <laughs> yes, they do, Maya. They do. So... They, they're big enough to destroy a yacht because they, you know, in, in a way, I think my island Aquitania or my my world Aquitania is sort of dune like because I don't want to give too much away. But there's something there that no one knew was there. That's going to be pretty important. It's I mean, so it's kind of like spice. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but but it's not it's not necessarily the same, but it does have these giant creatures. And when I wrote them after I wrote them, I was kind of thinking, you know, these kind of remind me of the sandworms because they don't they're very territorial. They didn't like the fact that these sort of ostentatious, very wealthy, um, you know, princes would would drive their yachts up to that part of of the. It's kind of in the northern reaches where they where they live, and and so this one um, one of my princes, who, who's a good guy in the end, I mean, he sort of he was a spacer who who made good, unlike the rest of them who were um, sort of born into wealth and just sent out here because they were the sixth and seventh sons to this backwater system. Uh, to do, you know, something for their family if they could. And it turns out it's going to be a pretty important system. But the one guy who I, who's kind of a, who's in the, the political game, uh, who, who's a good guy, who's kind of a self-made spacer, right? Um, so he, that he plays an important role, but he, he got, he got greedy too, and, and uh, a bit arrogant and took, you know, made money, had one of his pleasure yachts out and, and almost died and, and lost a lot of his people. And that kind of was a turning point for him when one of these big whale creatures you know, it was hubris, right? Greek right. concept of hubris. He he thought he was the shit, if you'll excuse my French, and um and nature put him in his place. So it's like classic Greek tragedy, except they're not Greek and it's not what the whole story is about. But. <laughs> and there aren't any gods. Right. Gods are the fun part. Let's see. So actually we are almost at an hour. So oh, I think really? we have one more question. We're gonna do our lightning round. So Sweet. last question is what do you hope readers get from your work? You know, I think I don't have pretensions of anything other than enjoyment. I really hope that they enjoy it. You know, with my sort of historical fantasy or fiction that I'm writing, I maybe they'll learn something, you know, because I do try to keep it, make it accurate. But that's more just for the enjoyment of it, um, too, you know, because it's no fun if you know something about history. Like, oh, man, that ain't right. That ain't even good right you know it's one thing if you change something or that even good wrong you know if you change something because it works for the plot but if you just make a mistake then that's kind of lame so i try not to do that but really i just want people to enjoy writing if they like science fiction i hope they like my science fiction if they like sort of thrillers supernatural thrillers i hope they like that stuff so yeah awesome so who has inspired you along the way um writers you think or are you talking about or just anyone it could be anyone mm -hmm. um well, I suppose my certainly have to say my wife, who is very tolerant of the stuff that I do and lets me, you know, sort of indulge in these worlds. So she's great. Um, I'm a big fan, though, on the writer side of Neil Stevenson. He's probably my favorite author. Um, you know, it takes you years to get through his books mm -hmm. uh, and then they're great weapons, you know, against burglars or elephants. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, or teeth he, whales. I mean, talk about someone who puts in historical detail. The Baroque cycle just blew me away. Um, mm -hmm. But all of his stuff is, is you know, he's he makes detail fun and interesting um, and still has great action stuff. So I, I've just always sort of been in awe of someone like him. But there's lots of people from Kevin Anderson to David Brin to Eric Flint who have inspired me. So, you know, you know, the usual suspects, Kelly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's lots of them out there. Writers are awesome. Uh, what hobbies do you enjoy to refill your creative cup? I like to do obstacle course racing. You kind of mentioned that you could see some of my medals behind here earlier. I do Spartan races, especially a little bit of Tough Mudder, but I love Spartan races because they give me a goal. So when I work out, when I run and lift and climb and stuff like that, I'm kind of working towards something. Uh, as I'm getting older, I want to make sure that I stay in shape. And so it's kind of fun because Spartan races give you an age group category. And I've been somewhat competitive. I've never been on the podium, but 
Um, you know, I've been in the you know top top fifteen, close to top ten sometimes. That makes me happy. It's just fun to see how how far I can push myself. Plus, it's fun to get muddy. And at Spartan races, you get to throw a spear, and that's just cool. Ooh. You know, that's just yeah, cool. yeah. That's awesome. But if you miss the target, you have to do burpees, thirty of them. So what? It's not, yeah. it's not so fun anymore. Let's see. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I like vanilla, not because it's vanilla, but because it's got so many, it's got so much potential. You can put peanut butter on it. You can throw chocolate chips on it. Um, you can make it chocolate if you want. Um, strawberries. So that's kind of what I like. Gotcha. You like the creative aspect. Yeah. Coffee like or tea? Coffee. Come on. I, I have to ask. You never I have I have an expensive Italian espresso machine and an expensive Italian grinder. When I lived in Europe, we'd go to Italy uh-huh. You go get espresso in Rome. You cannot go back. I'm sorry. My I, wife won't even leave the house until I've made her a latte anymore. So see, you spoiled her too. Yeah. Hot or cold weather? Cold. Cold. Favorite style of music? Probably rock. Love Classic it. rock. Excellent. My son and you would get along. He just listened to the entire Dark Side of the Moon. He's like, Mom, this album's awesome. <laughs> it's so cute when they discover things. How old is he? He's 20 now. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's been into David Bowie lately, so now he's going on to Floyd. Awesome. In his head, they're connected. Anyways, so finally, where can fans find you and your work? So I just, you know, I, I do, I don't use a lot of Facebook, but I do have a Facebook page. I think you're going to put it up, right? But it's yes. just facebook.com, Steve Ruskin author, I think. Um, at my website is steveruskin.com, S-T-E-V-E-R-U-S-K-I-N.com. Uh, and you can go there. You can get a free copy of The Devil's Broker um, novella, and that'll sign you up for my newsletter. I don't spam. I do it once a month on average. And um, then you can find out more about some books. And I should say that I've got a cool project that I'll probably be announcing in the next newsletter. Um, I'm co-writing a series that um, I was asked to write with a pretty well-known science fiction author, which still kind of blows me away um, that uh, I was asked to to help doing that. So. So exciting. I look forward to it. Um, So excellent. So now that Steve Ruskin is your current favorite writer, please make sure to review his work and also review us wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitch and subscribe on YouTube at cursedragonship.com slash YouTube. So can't wait to see you. Next week we have Stevie Causey on. So we can ask them all the awesome questions. And we want to thank our subscribers. We have Jenny, uh, Dave, D.H. Dunn, Helen Savore, and Mari Dietz. Thank you so much for subscribing and helping us keep these lights on. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.